there's a lot of talk today about self-care, about deliberate actions to improve our physical, emotional, and relational well-being. And the stress of our fast-paced lives compresses margin and pushes us to the edge. Exhaustion, anger, and conflict are signs <clears throat> that we need to keep an eye on our physical, emotional, and relational gauges. So a healthy diet, exercise and rest, centering our souls, reconciling relationships, all of these are important forms of self-care essential for us to fulfill our purpose in life. Well, self-care is one thing, but being selfish is another. Self-defined is us, our being distinct from another's. The ending ish, it means to be inclined toward. And so selfish means to be devoted to caring for oneself, interested in one's own interests, benefits, and welfare regardless of others. And using the Apostle John's terminology from the book of 1 John that we're studying through, selfishness belongs with hatred, darkness, and death, while sacrifice, the act of offering oneself, belongs with love, light, and life. Now, the most effective self-care, it isn't a day at the spa. It isn't an hour with our therapist. The most effective self-care is sacrifice. It's moving away from ourselves. Psychologist Carl Jung, the father of, of uh, analytical psychology, he was asked once after a university lecture how he would counsel a person who was on the verge of emotional collapse and most expected him to respond with advice about a treatment program that uh, included therapy and maybe uh, medication. <clears throat> but instead, his response was this. He said, I would encourage that person to walk out on the street and find someone to love, anybody. The best approach is to get one's minds off one's problems and onto another's needs. We still need to pursue self-care and attend to our souls but we're much healthier and happier when we're focused on the needs of others. Now, a mark of an authentic Christian is sacrifice, and it's sacrifice motivated by love. Sacrifice is the response of a person who has been humbled by a great love. In our quid pro quo world, a favor for a favor world, a you scratch my back and I'll scratch your back world, what's in it for me world, Christians present themselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, and a gift to others. And the Apostle John saw this as a binary choice. What will we choose? Will it be selfishness, or will it be sacrifice? Selfishness or sacrifice? In 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, it says this. This is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now, literally, John says we should relentlessly, sacrificially love one another. And there are four Greek terms for love um, in the Greek language. And the one that's used here is a form of agape. We're familiar with that one often. And that's a self-sacrificial love. Uh, it is a, it's a love that is grounded in the very nature of God because this is the way that God loves. In 1 John 4, 7 and following, it says this. Dear friends, let us sacrificially love one another. For sacrificial love, uh, and I'm going to embellish this, 
For sacrificial love comes from God, and everyone who sacrificially loves has been born of God and knows God, and whoever does not sacrificially love does not know God because God is a God of sacrificial love. And this was Jesus' message as well. In John 13, 34, he says, a new commandment I give you, sacrificially love one another. It's the same term, agape, in all of these usages. As I have sacrificially loved you, so you must sacrificially love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you sacrificially love one another. This is the message that they had heard from the beginning, and not just of the preaching of the gospel, not just the beginning of the church. Um, And John goes to Cain's example to reveal the fact that this has always been God's message. Let's go further in 1 John 3. In verse 12, it says this, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death and anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. And so John chose uh, a very dramatic verb to describe uh, Cain's action. It's a, it's a, actually it goes back to the Hebrew and it's fazo. It's, it's a term for butchering, it's to butcher. And so literally the text says that Cain butchered his brother. Instead of butchering an animal sacrifice, Cain butchered Abel. And why did he butcher him? In effect, to offer a sacrifice to himself. Getting rid of the reflection of his rejection was before God, was this was Cain's self-care. God revealed the offering he would accept and Cain refused to bring it. In fact, even if Cain had brought an animal sacrifice, which symbolized life given for life, um, it would not have been acceptable to God. And it wasn't that he brought the wrong sacrifice. It's why he refused to bring it. After rejecting his sacrifice, God addressed Cain. And this is from Genesis chapter four. He said, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And so Cain could have had the same favor that Abel had, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at at your door. It desires to have you and you must master it. Well, Cain ignored that warning. And when he couldn't choose the consequences of his choices, he butchered his brother because he was jealous of Abel's position of favor. And this is the first recorded sin in the Bible after the original one. Cain is Adam and Eve's son. He's an archetype of the first Adam uh, that rejected God. And Abel's sacrifice is an archetype of the second Adam. And this is the Lord Jesus offering his life for us years later. Now, since this is the way of the world, John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Uh, What does darkness have to do with light, he says. Darkness is the absence of light. Obedient Christians are to the world what Abel was to Cain. And so John says that we should expect this sort of thing and not be surprised. Jesus said, uh, they hate me and they'll hate you. Why is that? Well, it's because following Jesus is a narrow footpath. And people want a wide open highway to go and to do the things that they want to go and to do. This is the human predicament. This is the brokenness of our flesh. 
Hatred is a sign of spiritual death. Love is a sign of spiritual life. When we selfishly withhold the sacrifice of love, we, in effect, butcher people around us. We don't see it that way. It seems much more slight than that. But this is really the graphic way that Scripture puts it. And then the world resents us when we don't love sacrificially, and for good reason, because we're not authentic to the message that we say we believe, and we're not authentic to the Lord that we claim to serve. And so when we're set on taking care of ourselves, we don't act justly, love mercy, or walk humbly with God, because all of those require sacrifice. And so sacrifices of love form our lives into Christ's life and reveal the God we say we love. And then John goes on, and he goes on to reveal the pattern of sacrifice for us, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the pattern, Christ is the form. 1 John 3.16, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now, in a blog post, reflecting on Mary anointing Jesus' feet, uh, Esther, Esther Chang. Esther Chang writes a blog called Thoughts Through a Year, and you should all read this blog every day, right? I should get the, uh, the URL for that. <clears throat> but but in, in, in a blog this week, Esther drew parallels between Philippians 2 and Jesus washing the feet of the disciples uh, at the Last Supper. I thought I'd share it. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, very familiar passage for most Christians. It describes the process of Jesus emptying himself by taking on human flesh, of dying on the cross, and then being raised and honored again. And then in John chapter 13, we have the Last Supper. Um, and, and it says that during that meal, and taking these two passages together, it says that Jesus took off his robe, and it echoes the phrase in Philippians chapter two. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be held onto. And so Jesus released himself of this outward manifestation of the reality that he was God in order to enter human flesh. And then it says that he tied a towel on, and so he is taking on the form of a servant uh, and washed the disciples' feet. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, and then he put on his robe and he returned to his place in glory. And so God highly exalted him. And so the passage from Philippians 2 is this descension of Christ into humanity. He's born, lives, has a ministry, is, is, is put to death, and then raises again. Mary's sacrifice of love was emptying a flask of expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. That's the context of the passage that Esther was dealing with. And it points to the beauty of what Jesus is about to do for her. He emptied himself at great cost. And as Paul put it, Christ loved us. He gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In the summer of 1985, <clears throat> Henry Nouwen, familiar to many of you, uh, uh, he's a little late, uh, he passed away 25 years ago, but he was a Catholic priest who has written some very powerful books. And... Um, he also did a lot of lecturing uh, at various universities. And uh, Henry Nouwen, uh, he in fact left his role as a professor at Harvard Divinity School. And he joined a community called La Arche, which means literally the Ark. Um, and uh, it's in uh, Trosley, Bruel, France. La Arche communities are communities that house people with intellectual 
disabilities and those who assist them. And so they share life together. They live together and they share community and build community together. And so let me read you Nowen's experience of this and his reflection on it. He said, the first thing that struck me when I came to live in a house with mentally handicapped people was that their liking and disliking me had absolutely nothing to do with the many useful things I had done until then. Since nobody could read my books, uh, the books could not impress anyone, and since most of them never went to school, my 20 years at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard did not impress them. Not being able to use any of the skills that I had proved so practical in in the past was a real source of anxiety. I was suddenly faced with my naked self, open for affirmations and rejections, hugs and punches, smiles and tears, all dependent simply on how I was perceived in that moment. And in a way, it seemed as though I was starting my life all over again. The, the experience was and is the most important experience of my new life because it forced me to rediscover my true identity. These broken, wounded, and completely unpretentious people forced me to let go of my relevant self, the self that does things, shows things, proves things, and builds things, and forced me to reclaim that unadorned self in which I am completely vulnerable, open to receive and give love, regardless of any of my accomplishments. Now, whenever Henry traveled to speak, and he's, in another book he discussed this, there was a community member, there was an intellectually handicapped person uh, that was one of his uh, dear friends within the community. And this community member <laughs> insisted on traveling with him whenever he went to speak somewhere. And he insisted on sitting on the platform and providing encouragement and support and kind of covering Henry uh, as he spoke in these places. And so this was the self-emptying of Henry Nouwen. It was the self-emptying of Henry Nouwen in the pattern of Christ's sacrifice. In Romans 5, 6 and following, it says this, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners, when we had nothing to offer, when we were completely unattractive to him, there was no benefit to him for this except the fact that he loved us. The Lord Jesus died for us. John provides an example of sacrificial love in the passage going forward, and he chooses generosity. In 1 John 3.17, it says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? 1 John is a very simple book. It's very binary. It's this or that throughout the book of John. And so how can this person say that they love God if, in fact, they see people uh, in their orbit and they don't respond? Dear children, let us love not with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Now, generosity with material possessions is a, it's just a simple sacrifice of love. God provides us life. He provides us resources. And he does so because he loves us and cares for us, but it's also for the benefit of others around us. And we empty ourselves of the benefit of their use uh, for the benefit of another. And the same is true of the sacrifice of time and attention, uh, the sacrifice of giving people the time to pray for them as well. Indifference to others, it's a form of butchery. Uh, it's a rejection. And true love places the needs 
of others first. And so the pattern of sacrifice is what we see in the Lord Jesus, and this is at the very center of our story. It is this sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, this sacrifice of love that he has offered. Now, the promise of sacrifice, and there is a promise that is connected with sacrificial love, and that's confidence. While sacrifice is not motivated by benefits, right? So not quid pro quo. This isn't a mercenary thing. It's sacrificial. And so there are outcomes, but there are outcomes that are connected uh, to sacrifices of love. And John points this out. In 1 John 3, 19 and following, he says this. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, We know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. And so, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. So that's a conditional clause there. And so because if we keep his commands and do what pleases him, and this is his command, to believe in the name of of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John is takes time to say your your theology is important your beliefs are important we need to have beliefs that have transformed and we need to embrace the incarnation of the lord jesus christ Um, and this is a command to believe in the name of of his son the lord jesus and to love one another as he commanded us the one who keeps god's commands lives in him and he in them and this is how we know that he lives in us we know it by the spirit he gave us so the testimony of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, as a mark of an authentic Christian, sacrifice, when we function this way, when we live this way, it gives us confidence that we do, in fact, belong to God, and confidence that he responds to our prayers. And the condition placed on answered prayer is obedience in willing service. We keep his commands, John said, and do what pleases him. And so expressions of sacrificial love align us with God's will, and then our requests are consistent with God's work in the world. Assurance requires actions that are consistent with our identity. In other words, to feel like a Christian, we need to behave like one. Otherwise, our hearts condemn us. And John references the internal dialogue that goes on within us at times when our hearts condemn us. Hearts is used to refer essentially to the conscience here. Some Christians suffer from an overly sensitive or guilty conscience that can undermine the experience, their experience of God's love, their experience of salvation. It's not the careless Christian, but more often the carefully conscientious one who is plagued with a sense of guilt and inadequacy. And this may be connected to unresolved tensions in our personalities, which have their origin somewhere other from, than God. These, those things don't come from God. And some family of origin experiences and so forth can contribute to this. Um, And it may be connected to unresolved tensions within our personalities, which have their origin somewhere else. And so God is the final arbiter, and this is the great promise here. He's the arbiter and judge who can overrule our self-condemning heart. That means that he can comfort us. That means that he can assure us. That means that we can live with this, this confidence of who we belong to and what our future holds. Even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Thoughts and feelings are part of our system of awareness which may be misinformed and misguided. And so John shifts the basis for confidence from feelings. It's not about feelings, it's about facts that are supported by evidence. And that evidence are acts of sacrificial love. 
Now thus far in 1 John, as we've been moving through this series, uh, the marks of an authentic Christian. Here's what we've seen. So if you're keeping a scorecard, the first one is the transformation of beliefs and behavior and relationships, right? So there's transformation. There's a difference that is made in the life of a person who has come uh, to know God personally. There is also expressions of love for others. There's discernment, the ability to discern between truth and error, and that's a sign that the Holy Spirit resides within. There's hope in the Lord, both now and into eternity, and an expectation of his, of his return. And then sacrifices of love. These are the marks of an authentic Christian. So I'll leave you with some questions this morning. Is your life marked by selfishness or is it marked by sacrifice? How are you forming your life? How are you thinking about this? How are you forming your life, your resources, your freedom, the decisions that you can make, your time? How are, how are you forming that into the contours of Christ's sacrifice? And as a result, are you experiencing this confidence in God? May you live a life that is marked by sacrifice. May, may we be known as a church community that sacrifices out of great love for each other and for others. May we be willing to let, now here's a tough one, may we be willing to let that person into our lane in traffic. That's a very small sacrifice. But whenever I'm faced with those kinds of situations driving around, I always think, What's the thing to do here, right? I mean, everybody's just trying to get someplace, but that person who is willing to wait and let you in, uh, it is, it's, sometimes it's like the heavens open up and it's a blessing from God, right? Well, I think that we should be that person. May you be willing to sacrifice your vision for your life, for your career, for God's vision for your life and career. May you be willing to sacrifice your vision for your kids, in order to accept uh, the vision that is forming in them. May you set limits on Netflix and social media to just be more available to, teacher, to, to people. These are the great time crunchers of our age. May you sacrifice that juicy tidbit and resist gossip uh, to focus conversations in positive ways and for things to be said about individuals that you would appreciate being said about you. And may you be generous with your resources as a sign of your faith that God will continue to provide for you. Uh, and may you do that out of love for others. May you offer your life as a living sacrifice and experience God's acceptance. We're gonna celebrate now the event that was the consummate expression of sacrificial love for us, and that was the Lord Jesus offering his life. So let me pray for us and then invite you to come forward and take the elements back to your seat. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Lord, Father God, this is, uh, this is truly Christianity 101. We love because you have loved us. And Father, we, we sacrifice um, because we've come to trust you. Lord, we're confident that you will care for our needs. And Father, you'll care for our families. And of course, it doesn't mean that we don't work with everything that we have. Um, but yet, Father, we don't do it in a desperate way. 
we do it in a confident way, Lord. We, we know that you're going to provide for us. And so, Father, may we allow enough margin in our lives to have room to take time with people. May we allow for margin within our finances, God, so that we have uh, room uh, to care for people, to help people. And Father, may we have an orientation in our life that is not upon our needs in some desperate uh, attempt to care for them, Father, because you've told us that you've already taken care of those things. And so we shouldn't be chasing after them, but seek first your kingdom, God. That's, that's where joy is found. That's where confidence is found. Father, may our lives be authentic. May they align with what we say that we believe, and may they align with the Lord that we love. We praise him this morning and thank the Lord Jesus once again for the sacrifice of his life so that we might live. Father, the sacrifice of, of Abel and just the offering of bulls and goats, that pointed toward that day when the Lord Jesus offered himself and he covered us, he covered our sin. There is no greater gift and there is no greater love uh, than the love of the Lord Jesus for us and the act of sacrifice that he presented. And so, Father, uh, we look to that to guide us in the way that our lives are lived today. Thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.